Right, good morning to you, church family, and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to pick it up with verse 38, and we're going all the way through chapter 10, verse 39. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 406 page 406. This will be part two of my message entitled, Rebuilding Our Resolve. And as always, we'll begin in a word of prayer, then we'll consider our text. All right, let's bow together now. Our Lord, we do thank you for this good day to gather and worship you. I thank you for each of these dear people who has come. And Lord, I pray that you would use today's service to do a spiritual work in their lives, that you would ignite in their spirits a new love for you, a, a resolve to be committed to the truths of your word, and that perhaps, Lord, you would even use our local church to spark a reformation that would, that would stretch beyond the walls of this building to touch many cities and towns and churches. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people that is ready to be used by you in such a great cause. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week I started off by discussing the nature of reformations. I'd like to start there again this week. Starting with a definition, okay, a reformation is an intensive effort by God's people to reform their lives and institutions by the Word of God. And the book of Nehemiah is a book about reformation. This book has shown us how reformations are ignited. Okay? It happens when the Spirit of God moves among His people such that they become zealous for His cause. And they become willing to say whatever needs to be said, to do whatever needs to be done, to see their lives and their churches reformed by the Word of God. And they will do so regardless of the personal cost. This book has also shown us how reformations are fueled. Okay? This happens through worship. Through worship. Now, what is worship? Well, it is a special time of interaction between God and His people in which God is revealing himself to his people through the word, and his people respond to God through praise and obedience. And several weeks ago, we studied the worship service that fueled Israel's ongoing reformation in Nehemiah's day. The entire congregation of Israel gathered for that worship service, about 40,000 in number, men, women, and children. And this worship service was led by Ezra the scribe. He ascended a great wooden platform built for the purpose, taking a copy of God's word with him. And he opened God's word before the people, and spontaneously all of the people rose to their feet. Ezra then led the congregation in a prayer, and he thanked God for every instance of God's grace to Israel. And the people responded by saying, Amen, Amen, which meant, Yes, God, everything Ezra says, we affirm too. And then Ezra read from God's word, and he expounded upon God's word. And for hours and hours, this took place. And, the, and God's people there in Israel, they listened 
and they repented of their sins and they trusted in the promises of God. And this great national reformation began to take shape. Friends, this is what reformations are made of. When God's people gather together and bring themselves under the authority of God's word and they repent and they express their faith and they worship and they praise God for all that he is doing, this is a reformation. Friends, this book has also shown us how the gains made during a reformation can be sustained over the long haul. The first way is through family discipleship. And especially when Christian dads take it upon themselves to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. And they commit to learning all that they can from God's word. And then they impart that knowledge to their wives and to their children. And it happens when moms and dads together commit themselves to imparting the riches of the faith to their kids. In this way, the reformations gained in one generation are passed on to the next. Friends, there's another way that reformations are sustained long term as well. That's what we're going to see today. It also happens when God's people pledge together that they will be as faithful to God as He has been to them. Okay, when they pledge together to be as faithful to God as He has been to them. And when they actually keep themselves accountable to maintain that pledge. Friends, this step is critical to sustaining a reformation. And friend, if you want to see a reformation take hold in your own day, it must begin here. It must begin with you. And it must begin with us as a congregation. With us resolving that we will be faithful to God in every way. We will listen to His Word. We will implement His Word in every department of our lives and of our church. And that we will hold ourselves accountable before God. We'll be accountable to each other to maintain our commitment. That's what we're going to see in today's text. Let's pick it up now in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. Okay, we're picking it up here because in the Hebrew Bible, this verse actually begins chapter 10. Here's what it says. It says, now because of all this, okay, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Okay, friends, so Israel has made remarkable progress over the course of this book. As we have studied the book together, we have seen the Jewish exiles coming back into the Holy Land. We have seen them rebuild the walls of their capital city, Jerusalem. We have seen them engage in these seasons of national repentance. We have seen them reinstitute corporate worship, and we've seen great things come out of their worship. We've seen them revive their historic festivals and holy days. And we've seen them rebuilding their family discipleship. This, this nation has undergone a tremendous reformation. And yet this nation is also very sensitive to their history. And they know that, that for many, many generations, their people had been unfaithful to God and unfaithful to their covenant with God. And they know that, that it's possible that this could happen again. And so, to try to hold on to all of the gains that they have made, 
Okay? To, to keep this Reformation alive from one generation to the next, they decide to get together and to ratify a new national covenant. Okay? A new national covenant. Or even better, they, they determined to reaffirm the old covenant that they had had with God. The one that was made at Mount Sinai generations earlier. And this renewed covenant would have four important features. You see them here in verse 38. First, they say it would be a firm covenant. This could also be translated as binding, a binding covenant. You see, this was going to be a legal document that would include real tangible blessings for maintaining their commitments, but real tangible consequences for breaking them. See, what they're doing here is they're putting teeth to their verbal commitments. They say, look, we want this reformation to hold. We don't want our nation to backslide as it has done in the past. And so we will stand before God. We will make new vows to God. We will reaffirm our commitment but we're putting teeth to this one. This is going to be a binding agreement between us and God. And then secondly, you see, they put it in writing. They put it in writing. This also speaks to the seriousness of their commitment. This commitment would be in the form of a public document, visible to everyone. Believer and non-believer, Jew and pagan, God and man, everyone would see this document and therefore... The people of God would be held to their commitments. It would also be a sealed document. You find that in verse 38. Now, in those days, sealing a document marked your official assent to its terms. It made the legal document official. And then they were also going to sign their names to the document. And we find this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27. The names of those who signed this new document. By my count, there are 84 names here. Nehemiah's name is at the top because he was the governor of Israel. Following his name, we have the names of other political leaders, and then the names of Levites, and then the names of priests. And friends, these 84 names were simply representative of the whole congregation of Israel of the day. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me, chapter 10. It says, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. I'll stop there. So you see, we've got these 84 signatories to the document. But these 84 are representing everyone, men, women, children, all the people of Israel. They were all going to hold themselves to this new covenant. So friends, we see something remarkable happening in ancient Israel here. We see a people who were for so many generations unfaithful to God, turning to worship idols, plunging into every form of moral depravity, never keeping their promises to God and suffering the devastating consequences of it, being thrown into exile, being forced to live in foreign lands. But now, by the grace of God, they've been able to come back to their homeland. 
And slowly but surely, these caravans of exiles have been returning to the promised land. And this time, they want things to be different. And so, a reformation is sparked in this nation. And they rebuild their city's walls, and they reinstitute their worship, and they repent of all of their sins. And fathers get serious about discipling their kids And all is going so well. And now is the great climax of this national reawakening. They write a covenant, which is just a reaffirmation of that first covenant. And they seal it, and they put their names to it. And they're going to hold themselves accountable to keep the terms of this covenant. Of course, friends, you and I understand that we are not a part of national Israel. We have no part in her national covenants, right? We are a new covenant people, and we belong to Christ's church. And yet, there's much for us to learn from Israel's actions on this day. Much for us to learn. And I think the chief lesson here is about God himself. It's about the fact that God is always, always merciful and gracious, and eager to forgive his people, eager to reconcile when his people come to him in repentance and faith. And I say all of that because this is why Israel was was writing this new covenant document. Look, they understood that they had been unfaithful to God for many, many generations, and they had done unspeakable things. And they knew how awful their history as a nation had been. And yet they also knew who their God was. And they knew he was a God who was loving and gracious and merciful. And they knew the promise that God had made to them earlier, that if his people who are called by his name would just humble themselves and repent of their sins and seek his face anew, that he would receive them. And he would forgive their sins and he would heal their land. They knew these promises. And that's why they came to God as a great congregation on this day. It's why they drew up a new covenant and signed their names to it. They knew that if they did this, God would receive them again. Friend, there's a lesson about God in these verses. You see, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how long you have been away from God. It doesn't matter because the God of heaven is a God of grace. And he'll receive you no matter what. All you have to do is approach him in humility, repenting of your sins, trusting in him, clinging to the all-sufficiency of his atonement through Christ. That's all you have to do. And he'll receive you. He'll receive you as his child, or if you are his child already, but you've backslidden, he'll renew his fellowship with you. That's the kind of a God that he is. Friends, there's another important lesson in these verses, and that's about repentance. This shows us what true repentance looks like. You see, true repentance is rooted in the will, not the emotions. Okay, rooted in the will, not the emotions. And here's what I mean by that. Yes, repentance can include godly grief. It can even include weeping over over one's sins. But it doesn't just stop there, okay? Repentance is more than just 
feeling your conscience being pricked by things that you've done. It, it's more than just weeping over the bad consequences you've had to experience because of sinful choices. No, repentance is when you actually, deep in your soul, in your will, you are experiencing a change in your desires. You no longer desire that life away from God. You no longer desire to practice those old sins. Rather, your desire is now for God. And you see the beauty of His holiness. And you see the loveliness of His law. And you feel this urge to follow hard after God now. That's repentance. Yes, you weep because the, the life wasted and those sins grieves you. But you have a determination now also to follow after God. Friends, that's repentance, a movement of the will. And friends, this, this new covenant document which Israel was signing on this day, this was simply the fruit of their genuine repentance. They had made a decisive break with their sins. They said, we don't want it anymore. We don't want to be away from God anymore. We want Him now. And we want the joy of His presence in our lives. And so they write this document. It's the fruit of their repentance. And they say, we're going to follow God now. Friends, this is what true repentance looks like. And this is how you can know whether you have really meant business with God. It's what have you done about your sins? Have you continued on despite the emotional pain that it brings you? Or have you made a decisive break? Have you said a change needs to happen? Has there been a movement of your will away from all of that and toward God through Christ? That's repentance. And then there's a third important lesson from these verses. Here we see the importance of accountability structures to help us maintain our godly walk. That's what this covenant document was. It was, it was an accountability tool. They were making a legal document. It was public. It was signed and sealed. They were holding each other to this. And they were inviting God to hold them to it, to bless them as they kept it, to curse them as they rejected it. Friends, it's good for us to maintain healthy accountability structures as a local church and as individual Christian disciples. In fact, this is part of what it means to join a local church, you see. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing you do is present yourself to a local church. And you offer your testimony of conversion. And then the congregation baptizes you in the name of the triune God. This is signifying your break with your old life. And now you are being raised to new life in Christ. And then as you join that local church, you are signing your name, at least here at Grace Baptist Church, you sign your name on a piece of paper that says, I affirm my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I affirm my desire to maintain a Christian walk, and I am asking all of you to hold me accountable, and I will help you to be accountable to it. We sign a church covenant when we join. We hold each other accountable and we don't see this as a burden. We see it as a, as a good and necessary step for us, as a tool to help us persevere long term so that we never walk away from the Lord. Friends, accountability structures are good for us 
It's good for individual Christians too. Perhaps you're a, you're a member of the church already, but maybe you have this, what we call sometimes these besetting sins, okay? You've got this one particular vice, and you have tried over and over to overcome this vice, and you just are having no victory over it. Well, maybe it's time to take it to the next step and bring others in on this. Stop trying to do this alone. Bring your Christian brothers and sisters around you, one or two of them, to come and to help you. And establish an accountability partnership. Invite them to ask you at regular intervals how this battle against your sin is going. Invite them to read the scriptures with you and perhaps meditate on its teachings together. Invite some others into your life to hold you accountable. This, this humble step is often necessary for overcoming deeply rooted vices. Friends, this passage shows us how important accountability can be for maintaining a godly walk long term. But then, friends, as we do this together, it's also good for us to be very, very specific about the new path we want to follow. We need to break with old ways of living, but we need to lay out a concrete course going forward. And this is what we find here in chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. We have a detailing of their covenant commitments. They start with the general, and then they move to the specific. Let's start with their general commitment, verses 28 and 29. It says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and here's the general statement, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. You see, this is what their covenant renewal was all about. It was a renewed commitment to walk in the law of God. See, friends, immediately after rescuing the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt, God met with the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And there God took this ragtag group of former slaves and he constituted them as a nation. And he gave them their national constitution. It was the Ten Commandments, ten laws from God written on tablets of stone. And then, in addition to these Ten Commandments, God gave them many other statutes and ordinances. These fleshed out the Ten Commandments into all of the, the departments of life. These were good laws and holy laws, laws that would lead to flourishing if the nation would observe them. But for so many years, so many years, the Israelites forsook this law. They chased after other gods they sacrificed their own offspring to these false gods. They plunged themselves in every form of immorality. They destroyed their nation in the process. And so on this day, they were renewing their commitment. They were saying, we will walk by God's good law. From this point forward, no more backsliding, no more turning away from God. We're going to keep it. And then, in verses 30 through 37, they get really specific. 
they're going to outline some of the ways that their ancestors had failed God. And now they're going to assert their determination to be different, to walk in the ways of God. First, we see their, reject, their, their commitment to reject every form of syncretism. Every form of syncretism, which is the mixing of true religion with false. Look at verse 30 with me. They say, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. You see, in the past, in the past, the sons and daughters of Israel had been given in marriage to the pagan peoples around them. And the result was not that those pagan peoples converted to Judaism. Instead, those Jews converted to paganism. So this was never a racial thing. It was a religious thing. By marrying the pagan peoples around them, they became as the pagans themselves. They did not want this to happen again. They were determined that this time they would follow God's law. This time they would marry within the faith. And in this way, their nation and their faith would be perpetuated to the next generation. They were not going to fall into syncretism again. Verse 31, they renew their commitment to keep the Sabbath laws. It says, and if the peoples of the land, okay, that's just a statement referring to the pagans who live in and about Israel. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. You see, the fourth commandment says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God had prescribed for Israel that one day of every week, the Saturday, they were to lay aside all of their regular labors and spend the whole day resting and worshiping God. The Jewish people had never followed that law. They never did. They had other Sabbath laws. There was a law that said every seventh year, the Jews had to allow their land to rest. They could not grow crops year after year in perpetuity. Okay? That would destroy the ground. Every seventh year, the land had to rest, had to rebuild its nutrients, and then they could plant the following year. They had never kept that law either. Their greed prevented them from taking a year off of their planting and harvesting. They had never obeyed the Sabbath laws, but now, now that their nation is experiencing a reformation, now they're determining to keep those Sabbath laws. Every Saturday, they were committing to lay aside their labors and to rest and to worship God because they understood that worship is the fuel that sustains a reformation. You, you neglect worship and every other aspect of your life will begin to fall apart. Worship keeps it all together. And so they prioritize their day of worship and every seventh year, they would give their land the rest that it required. From this point forward, they were going to follow God's law. Then verses 32 to 37, we see a renewal of their commitment to support the Lord's work. We see their promise to support it with monetary donations. 
That's verses 32 and 33. They also promise to donate their time and energy to the Lord's work. That's verse 34. Let's read that verse together. It says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. You see, the law stated that the fire on the altar in the temple must always be burning. It was to be as an eternal flame. Of course, this required a lot of wood, constant supply. And so on this day, the Israelites divided into families and then they cast lots. And each family would have one day of the year when it was going to bring in a supply of wood to keep the fire on the altar burning. They were committing their money, they were committing their time and their resources Verses 35 through 37, we see the promise to donate their property to the Lord's cause. They pledge to give the first fruits of their crops, of their livestock, the first fruits of their wine and their oil. Everything they had, the first and the best of it all, was going to go to the temple service because worship is the most important thing. Verse 36, they even pledge their firstborn sons. Look at that with me. Verse 36, in fact, let me start at verse 35. It says, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. That's the temple. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of God, the firstborn of our sons. They were pledging their firstborn sons not to sacrifice them, but to dedicate them to the Lord's work. You understand what a tremendous sacrifice this would have been because if you dedicate your firstborn son to the service of the temple, that means you cannot use your firstborn son to help you plant your crops or harvest your crops or maintain your homestead or watch your own livestock. It was an economic hardship for the family. But again, worship is the most important thing. And to ensure that the worship of God was sustained generation after generation, every family promised on this day that they would disciple their children in such a way that they would desire to serve God more than anything else. And they would offer their firstborn sons to the temple, to God, to give themselves to to being temple servants, gatekeepers, laborers for the sake of God. They were ready to give everything to God. And finally, verses 38 and 39, they pledged to be faithful stewards of everything donated to the Lord's work. It says, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. What we have here is a system of checks and balances set up. 
We have a, a chain of custody established for the handling of all donations to the temple because they want to be sure that every last item donated to the Lord's work would actually go to the Lord's work. That not one penny of it, not one glass of wine would be misused. That all of it, all of it would go to the Lord's work. Now friends, it's clear in looking at this passage that these people were serious about following God's word. They would reject syncretism. They would keep the Sabbath laws. They would support the Lord's work as their primary focus. They would maintain their worship. They would disciple their children in the ways of God to ensure that the gains made during this precious time in their history would not be lost. Now, my friends, as we begin this new year together, I think we would all do well to remember the commitments that we have made to God and to one another as fellow members of Grace Baptist Church. And I think it would be good for us to take just a moment to renew our commitments to one another. And that's why I've included in our uh, bulletin our church covenant. I'd like you to take that out at this time if you would. You see, everyone who joins Grace Baptist Church signs their name to a document that says, I have read the church covenant, I affirm all that it says, and I will keep these promises. These are my promises to my new church family. I will maintain them. And it's asking the congregation to keep us faithful. When I sign, I am asking you to hold me to these. And when you sign, you're asking me to hold you to it. Friends, I think this is a great way to start our new year together at Grace Baptist Church, to pull that old church covenant out. Maybe you haven't seen it since the day you joined. And we shall read it together. We shall renew our promises as a church family. And may God use this to instill in us a longing to be faithful to God's word, to reform our lives and our church according to his standards, and might God use our commitment to do great things in the city of Marshall and beyond in this new year. I'll read the plain text. We'll all read the bold. It says, Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Together, we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, 
to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all gossip, backbiting, and unrighteous anger. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we move from this place, if we should move from this place, that we will as soon as possible unite with another church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Amen. Amen.